Hey, welcome to the Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that translates Donald Trump. We're taking an honest look at the current administration, and we're taking a look at what we regard as existential threats to America. And I believe this border crisis is a threat to America. Mm -hmm. The president's on the right side of this. Joining us today, our friend Joel Farkas. He's a director of the American Strategy Group. I am a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington. There's plenty to talk about with Joel today, including rising interest rates, the U.S. economy, drastic drop in the stock market market, declining oil prices, and much more. We'll get Joel's thoughts on all those things. And an update on what Joel's been telling us about California, losing people. It's losing people, but it's also gaining some people. It's a more complicated situation than you might think. Let me take this opportunity to ask people, as we get to the end of the year and the beginning of the next year, tell us what you think the most consequential, important news story or stories Mm. of the year or events, uh, either one. Uh, And uh, we would love to get an email where do, where do they send? I mean, if they have an email, where in heaven's sure. name do they send it? Bill Bennett podcast at gmail.com. Bill Bennett podcast at gmail.com. Yes. I just have one I want to suggest, and you tell me, folks, at that email address if you think I'm right or wrong. But I am convinced that the single most important thing is an unfinished story. We are yet to get the full story. And here I will borrow from an editorial by Kimberly Strassel in the Wall Street Journal. She writes uh, just a few days ago, one of the greatest dirty tricks of our political times in which a Democratic administration, Democratic Party and presidential campaign either co-opted or fooled the FBI into investigating the Republican campaign and the candidate for president on the Republican side, Donald Hmm. Trump. Lawmakers got to the bottom of this despite partisan attacks and institutional obstruction. Congress has taken that probe about as far as it could go. The next steps are up to the White House. This is, I think, the scandal of the year, maybe of the decade, maybe more, but we don't know it yet. Uh, The next steps are up to the White House because the president can release everything. All the memoranda between what may be the Democrat Party and the FBI, but is the corruption of the FBI and senior FBI officials in the service of a political campaign and a political end that you talk about serious corruption of fundamental institutions. That would be uh, that would be it. Strassel gives credit to Devin Nunes. We have talked to Devin Nunes, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, right. uh, outgoing mm-hmm. chairman. Um, he had to extract the real story. We know the Democratic National Committee and Hillary Clinton's campaign hired an opposition research firm, Fusion GPS. They, in turn, retained a British gun for hire, Christopher Steele, to compile the so-called dossier. Fusion then injected this into the FBI, the Justice Department, and the State Department. This was political dirt, part of the FBI's decision to launch an unprecedented counterintelligence investigation into a presidential campaign. Quite extraordinary. This dirt was also the basis for a surveillance warrant against former Trump aide Carter Page that so-called credible Mr. Steele was fired by the FBI and that the FBI withheld the most sordid details from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, the FISA court, which granted those warrants. And we separately know the Obama administration was engaged in the unmasking of U.S. citizens and the leaking of classified information. We know that House investigators have not released an official report on their findings to date. They know the story, but they cannot tell it comprehensively. This is still Kimberly Strassel. They know the story, but they can't tell it comprehensively until President Trump follows through and declassifies the relevant documents. The president is said to be waiting for the Mueller probe and prosecutions to end so he can counter with this. And this may be a much bigger story. But uh, we need transparency, and the president maybe will want to do this even before the mm-hmm. final Mueller report is in. Right. Any right. thoughts? No, I mean, I think that that's a huge story, and I think, I think it's a good counterbalance to, you know, what was this whole Mueller probe even about it? First thing, one big story is we've gotten stuff about uh, payoffs to the, about alleged affairs, and we've get, got story, Stormy Daniels, but nothing regarding collusion, and that was the whole point of it. No I don't collusion know there, top, but, but, it, but as Strassel is right— and Nunes is right. Mm-hmm. Tons of collusion on right. the other side, exactly. and possibly the corruption of the nation's high, highest law, highest law enforcement agency. Right. right. We await more documents on this. President's got to release them sooner or later. Don't lose sight of that. All right. That's my thought about the big story of the year. Obviously, there are other big stories: the Me Too movement, the Justice Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh confirmation thinking, yeah. hearings. Mm-hmm. Big deal. A uh, big deal there. 
But uh, I would welcome your thoughts, comments on what I've just said or other things. Um, I noticed CNN listed it. The big story of the year is the, is the constant tweet storm of, uh, <laughs> of the president. Well, you know, OK, right. that's not a story. That's, that's frankly not news. Exactly. Yeah, right. But uh, anyway, I'd uh, love to hear from you. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. Well, it's time to welcome Joel Farkas to the show. He's a director of the American Strategy Group. I'm a fellow at the American Strategy Group here in Washington. Joel, we'll start with holiday cheer. You got something to tell us, the audience? Well, I have. Uh, um, there's some pretty good news for uh, for the middle class, and uh, they're saving a lot of money with the recent uh, decline of, uh, of oil prices and gas prices. Um, Americans are spending 225 million dollars less per day on fuel costs wow. than they were 75 days ago. Wow! So, uh, uh, but aren't you in driving, the aren't you in the oil business? Isn't this bad news for you? I am in the oil business. Uh, it's it's really good news for Americans. It's really good news good for, for America. Good for you. And, and you know, prices, I'm not in the oil business because I want ever-increasing astronomically high oil prices. It's a business, and we we try to run our business regardless of whether oil is at $45 a barrel or $75 a barrel. But what's our customers, it's important that our customers maintain a really good good situation good for you and that's the joel farkas we know and admire good for you and you know there's uh united states is united states is doing still doing very well because part of the oil business is is energy security that's uh that's just as important more actually not just as important more important than high oil prices high oil prices in specifically benefit uh the middle eastern countries in russia specifically it's there's a straight line to that yeah. Uh, it does not necessarily hurt the United States because oil prices drop. All right. Well, I think uh, all I have to say is I think you just must be taking a holiday from the news. You've talked about good here and good there and good news and good news for Americans. Aren't you watching TV? Rising interest rates, recession is coming, declining oil prices. Uh, Jim Cramer, uh, was he CNBC, said he felt powerless. Uh, the country's going to hell, well, isn't it? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, I have watched the news over the Christmas holidays. I, I have watched it. Um, I watched it, and it was uh, it was my version of a Saturday Night Live epi- series of episodes. Okay. Funny to me. Okay. Funny. Tell me. Listen Tell us. Me. Oh, uh, let's start with um, surging interest rates. They surged. Well, there's there's two main interest rates that people look that, that the federal government looks at and fund managers and experts look at the 10-year treasury and the federal funds rate federal funds rate is now 2.5 percent if we looked at a 40-year history or 60 70 year history of the federal funds rate and I, i'd like i'd like you i'd like your listeners to go google that and just pull it up two and a half percent is pretty much the lowest the lowest but for one other time than we've had in the last 60-plus years of history. The only other time was during the Barack Obama presidency, where the Fed funds rate was pretty much entirely less than 1% and almost 0%. So, yes, President Trump is frustrated that the Fed has increased it four times in 2018, and I think seven times since he's been elected president. And he's frustrated because during his predecessor's tenure, it was zero almost. And now it's going up, but it's only two and a half percent. Yeah. And the 10 year treasury rate is about two and three quarter percent. And we can look at a 200 year history of the 10 year treasury rate. And it's at, it's at its lowest time. It's the lowest rate pretty much over that entire 200 year history. So, um, yes, it has gone up. Um, there's no doubt, but the, the bastardization of what that means is what's happening with what we're getting from our experts and our fund managers and, and our political opponents, because where they where they become uh, uh, humorous is how they describe what that means, that the rates have gone up and the econ- and the stock market has gone down. Mm-hmm. That's where it becomes uh, uh, funny. All right. Well, about, I uh, don't want to be too specific, but less than a uh, quarter of a mile from where I'm sitting right now talking to you is the residence of the uh, Federal Reserve, the Fed. And um, the president has talked about firing Mr. Powell. He can't do it. But should he? I mean, if he could, should he? Or 
I take it from what you've just said, no. No, he should not fire the Fed chairman. Um, however, I do I do want to uh, to explain why he's frustrated. There's no doubt that when interest rates rise, costs go up. That, that's a fact. But when the, the Fed chairman is ri- raising interest rates, it's because lower interest rates, abnormally low interest rates, increase asset values of all kinds of things abnormally high. The stock market, for instance, when, you, when, when investors are borrowing money at almost nothing, they can invest a lot. As their investment, their borrowing costs go up, they invest less. And, if, and, 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 and that's what happens. The, the Fed is doing this in their perspective because they're trying to ameliorate abnormally high asset prices, whether it be for housing, whether it be for stocks. But the president's frustration is well-founded. Your your prior boss, boss, uh, uh, President uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, was faced with rising interest rates before his next election in the early early 90s. And while the Fed thought they were doing the right thing at that time, politically, it was damaging to George Herbert Walker Bush running for re-election. All of those things can be simultaneously true. Sure. Got it. Okay, good. I will smile again, um, despite the news, because uh, you have put it in good perspective. Now the, Go ahead. Now, the, yeah. stock market, the stock market went down. That's, there's no question. We can, we can yeah. ex- discuss that, too. But uh, The worst week in history, the worst year in history, the worst. Yeah, yeah, no. Well, the worst, the worst in history. I, I think I, I read. Um, uh, my, let me see. We're either talking about the Great Depression in the 1930s. Uh, we hear about the Great Recession in 2008. One thing that's uh, that's uniquely kept out of the of the of the historical record is the stagflation times. The stagflation times uh, from Jimmy Carter, President Carter. We we just talked about interest rates. Interest rates at that time were almost 20 percent. And unemployment 20%. was 20, tw- hang on 20%. percent. Hard to remember. 20, two zero, two zero. Uh, unemployment was oh, somewhere around 12 yeah. percent um, in those days. And I, and I haven't seen any fund expert, uh, uh, any economist, Paul Krugman or any uh, Jim Cramer, anybody who writes stuff that's the worst since blah, blah, blah. They always leave that period of time out. Okay, yeah, Um, maybe it was worse. 20% interest rates and 12% unemployment. Yeah, maybe. Gosh, crazy. Now, now the stock market, the the decline, the first question I asked myself when the stock market declined and saw every, the the media uh, and, 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 and political experts opining as to what happened and why, is who actually just lost this money? And um, it's interesting. I think uh, when you look, you hear on, on, on CNBC has all these shows, Trading Nation, Mad Money, Power Lunch, Squawk Box, the great names for all these things. And every single time you hear one of the people on those shows talk about the stock market, they say, you know, more than half of America, more than half of Americans own stocks. And this stock is this ubiquitous, pervasive, important element of the economy. Now, that's true. But what they also leave out, again, another thing left out, is 85% of the stock value, not the reach of stocks, the ownership, but 85% of stock value is owned by the top 10% of Americans. Now, there's one thing that uh, some of these uh, very, very wealthy progressive liberals hate more than President Trump, is they hate losing money. And yes, in the last 30, 45 days, there was a tremendous amount of money lost. But it wasn't lost by the middle-class Americans very much. It was, it was lost by the top 10% of Americans, the wealthiest. I guess, with, uh, you know, when we want to talk about income inequality, I guess that just happened. We have created some more income equality. Yeah. He, well, he but, wasn't uh, saluted that, for it, though, as I don't, I don't... No, he wasn't saluted for, for changing it. But that's who that's who lost. I'm not saying that's good. I'm not advocating that they lost money. But for middle-class Americans, which, which is who I really care most about, the most unrepresented constituency in the United States, the world has not ended for middle-class Americans. Okay, good. There was, there, was a, there was a market shock, but it's only a market shock for those who have access to a bunch of business shows. Before we get to California, there's just one, one other item that I wanted to, to 
mention if you wanted to. Yes. Yes. Go yeah. right ahead. We were we were discussing the fund manager experts, and I'd like to note that these so-called experts, when you look, they they man what they what what does a fund manager do? They manage fund, they manage money for other people. Standard and Poor's has a basic index set of index funds. Over the last fifteen years, almost sixty five percent of the large cap fund managers funds have extinguished they've gone away because they couldn't they couldn't beat standard index fund when you when you look at the success over the last decade or so of whether and how many fund managers were able to beat standard index funds for the S&P fewer than 10% were able to do do so so when when wow. people are listening Amazing. to when people are listening to the experts who begin with so-and-so who manages such-and-such fund, we need to realize, and they need to realize, the experts are not even exceeding basic index funds, which require no active management. Wow. Quite amazing. Take note of that. Let's move on. Um, you yes. sent me an article, Joel, and uh, very grateful you, you are you contribute so much uh, to this cause, and, and not least of which is the smart stuff you send us. The article is called, Who Moves to California? The Wealthier and Better Educated, Mostly. Uh, we'll put a link up to the piece on the, on the site. But it expands on a conversation we have been having over the course of the last few months about California, whether California, whether the country, in which most of the emphasis, I think it's fair to say, has been about what California's losing. This article was interesting because it seemed to me a pretty fair-minded article um, about um, not just losses, but gains. And toward the end of the article, there's a kind of summary. I want to hit about three or four points all related to the same larger theme. And I just want, let, let me just read and then, and then get your, your comment. A report from the state legislative analyst's office in February found that although California has had net out-migration among most demographic groups, that is, if you count everybody, all economic groups, more people leaving than staying, it has gained among those with higher incomes, 110,000 per year or more, and those with higher levels of education, graduate degrees. That's a fact, right? That is a fact, yes. They profile in the piece, and I read every word of it, um, two people, I assume not married, man and woman who came together, both professionals, both making over 100 a year, settled in San Francisco. They're perfectly happy. That's the kind of typical profile of the people who are coming in and adding, or at least representing a plus, to the California population. Families with kids... And those with only a high school education predominate among those moving from California to its top destination state. So high earners, high education coming in, people with only a high school education and with kids moving out. Next, from 2012 through 2017, newcomers with bachelor's and graduate degrees poured into California from other states, showing a net increase of about 76,000 over those leaving, that is, comparing apples to apples, those with bachelor and graduate degrees. At the same time, those with less than a four-year degree left in droves, a net loss of more than 400,000 people. While you're trading California, someone could say in defense of California, as I've heard Jerry Brown and others say, you know, we, we hate to see people go, but we're trading lower educated people for higher educated people. However, uh, the author of this study said the imbalance may not be entirely positive. We need low-skill workers, too. We need hospital orderlies. We need school bus drivers. We need uh, nannies and gardeners. What's the attraction of California? California's dynamic energy is what draws these high-level earners with the graduate degrees. Everything new hits here first. You feel like you're in the avant-garde. The danger, then, this is the last one, is that California will continue to attract 20-somethings but lose 30-somethings. Young people do most of the moving, the author said. They hunt around, and California's a big magnet. But then they face severe housing prices here, so families are being lost. We are not growing a complete society. Expand on this and fill in some blanks. I thought it very interesting, because I think a lot of the people took away from our earlier conversations that there's a net out-migration in California, which is true. It's a net out-migration of people with families who would like to be come and be part of the middle class. We didn't quite 
cover so much the in-migration uh, of people with these high degrees. But the people with high degrees add something, obviously add a lot, but there's still major problems with this. Help, help us sort this out. We have two examples in the United States of what you've just read, California and New York. Extremely wealthy. Uh, those two states comprise almost half the billionaires in the United States. They also lead America in the highest homelessness and poverty rates. We have had an interest in discussing what the middle class can do, what middle, what moderate voters, what middle Americans, what young married couples who want to start a family, where they can go. Well, there's two places they cannot go. As good as as good as it is that people with very high incomes are moving to both California and New York, but those are two places the middle class cannot go. There is no place for them. There's not enough. When when you hear about how do we save the middle class? And they have a panel of experts describing it. The kinds of things that they come up with to save the middle class are guaranteed minimum income, health care, free college tuition, get wage increases. All of those are a series of events and policy discussions. There's not one expert, not one expert that I have read that focuses on housing costs. Because in California and New York, whether you are renting or whether you are buying a home, more than 50%, in some cases 60 to 70% of your monthly income goes to housing costs. If you live in San Francisco, only 12% of the population of San Francisco can afford a median-priced home. So it is absolutely true that higher educated, higher wage earners flock to a place like California where the weather is impeccable, the oceans are beautiful, the mountains are beautiful, job opportunities for high-wage earners are there. Absolutely true. But if you are something other than that, which doesn't make you a bad person, it does not mean it's not. It should not be a pejorative that you're a middle class family wanted to uh, wanted to get married and have kids and buy a home. It's not a pejorative. There is no place for you in California. There is no place for you in New York. Let me press this point. Fine. And we have talked about folks moving to Tulsa, right, and uh, Kansas and Texas. Now, okay, and we care about them, and there are more of them leaving than the higher educated coming. But can you have, the, the, the quote here was a complete society, can you have not just a complete society, but can you have a truly well-functioning society if all your immigration or most of your immigration in is higher educated. No. And we're going to see this next year uh, in, in the state of California. The state of California's budget, their, re their revenue, about 70% of the revenue going into the state of California comes from in uh, personal income tax returns. 70%. The rest is sales tax and corporate taxes. But mainly, personal income tax return revenue generates 70% of California's state budget. 50% of that comes from about 165,000 taxpayers. 50% of the entire state budget, personal income tax, comes from about 165,000 taxpayers. They earn, their earnings are from either real estate related or stock related earnings. Those people just lost money the last 30 days. That revenue will not occur next year in the state of California. Uh -huh. And you will see, you will see the state of California and the state of New York trying to reevaluate their budget based on that tremendous hit to revenue that they're about ready to experience. So those states rely on a heavy hit on heavy hitters, heavy yes. income hitters. And, yeah. and a relatively small number as a percentage of the population. But because There's 40 million people, plus or minus, in the state of California, 35 to 40 percent of their budget comes from 165,000 taxpayers. Uh, I, 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 don't, I, I don't know of any enterprise, government or private enterprise, that can exist and that would want to exist on that kind of, uh, kind of financial fiscal situation. Quickly, in my head, that's like 0.03 percent, right? It's small. Yeah. It is small. 40 million, 1 million would be 2.5%. This is 165, one-tenth of 1.5%. Yeah, point. Yeah. The other, the, other, the other point of that is the, in the United States economy, our GDP, 70% of it is based on consumer spending. Yeah. That consumer spending does not come from very poor and very wealthy people. It comes from the middle class. We need a middle class to sustain our, our GDP 
which is some the highest in the world from, from consumer spending, consumer consumption. It needs to, it, we need a middle class to do that. What will, uh, give me a guess. This is fascinating. This is not in the article. This is, this is why we have Joel Farkas to expand on these articles. If um, X is the amount of money that uh, was put out by these 165000 in taxes this year, what will it be next year? 60% of X, 70, 40? Well, it's, uh, um, my first comment is I don't know. Right. However, it's not a percentage normally. Either someone makes money or loses money. If you make money, it's normally on stocks and real estate. It's normally a lot. If you lose money, it's not only not a lot, it's a loss. So it is a very wild swing. So the revenues available to the state because of this could, from these 165,000, could drop drastically. Drastically. Which means that California then does what? Well, California then doesn't have all the money it thought it had to advance its new political agenda. Uh, California now has, uh, the Democrats now have a supermajority in both governmental houses, the Assembly and the Senate. And they've actually started, they being the Democrats, have actually started introducing bills for the state, for next year's state legislature to take up. And the list of bills within the last couple of months have been kind of the following. Attacks on the sale of handguns, uh, cracking down on e-cigarettes, uh, allowing uh, undocumented immigrants over the age of 19 to enroll in Medi-Cal, um, to, uh, uh, to, to have let, let the state take over land use decisions for uh, housing, housing for all as a right. Now, this is housing for uh, for the, to deal with the homelessness and poverty, not housing to deal with middle class. Um, and then to, uh, they try to, uh, the, the uh, California Utility Commission tried to tax, wants to tax, uh, uh, put a place a tax on text messaging. So this is right. the priority, the legislative priority for next year in the state of California. You will note that there is not one thing there dealing with middle class families and homeownership and, and, and housing costs for middle class Americans. Not one. So when they run out of money, uh, they're going to have to. Uh, I don't know what they're going to have to do. My guess is they're going to. They're not going to have as much money to spend, and I, they'll be a little bit surprised. My suspicion is they'll be more shocked than prepared. And they'll cut services, raise taxes. <laughs> oh, they'll find the money somewhere. They, there's. <laughs> they're not going to cut services. The state of California does not cut. So um, what is your personal income tax going to go up to 16%? Uh, or maybe they'll delay the uh, tens of billion dollar bullet train that they're trying to build between oh, yeah, LA okay. and San Francisco. Maybe they'll just delay that for a little while. Apart from fiscally, could you come in? And if I'm off base here, just tell me. I was, I was struck by a lot of things in this uh, article, in the summary of this study. But this one, this one struck me particularly. The imbalance here of people losing people may not be entirely positive. We need low-skill workers, too, not just the hotshots coming in. Hospital orderlies, school bus drivers, nannies, and gardeners. I remember, please excuse the example, but it's a real-world one, and I know the plural of, as a friend of mine said, the plural of anecdote is not data, but here's an anecdote. I went to the Jackson School District. You've been in Jackson, Wyoming, I assume, right? Grand Tetons? Yes. Beautiful. Yes. Gorgeous. Very well-heeled community, like Aspen in Colorado. Very well-heeled. I spoke at the school. They wanted me to talk about curriculum matters. I said, I haven't heard one thing of complaint about, or I usually hear from the education establishment here about teacher salaries. They said, oh, no, there is no complaint. We average, this was maybe 20 years ago, Joel. We average seventy-five to one hundred and ten thousand a year for our teachers. Some some number like that. And I said, why? They said because they can't afford to live here, <laughs> right? In this right, precious, right. precious community, right. they got to come over the mountain. I remember they have to drive over the mountain, which means they have to live fifty, sixty, seventy miles away. In order yeah. to entice them, that's not a highly populated area, right? In order to entice uh -huh. them to come over the mountain, we got to pay them a ton of money. Now, is there a similar situation in California, which in regard to, you know, um, 
hospital orderlies, school bus drivers, uh, nannies, gardeners, uh, in, in, in much larger numbers. My point is, it's not just a, not having a complete society, including the middle class, but it's having a sort of crisis. Where are they going to get all the workers? Where, how are they going to pay them? Especially when the services, well, you said they won't get cut because it's California, it's a Democrat. Let's, what do they do? Do they just start paying gardeners $45 an hour? Well, it's kind of an arrogant headline, don't you think? Um, where am I going? How am I going to get the people who serve me? Oh sure. I, I, oh sure. Oh sure. A little, little bit of little, little arrogant. Oh uh, um, sure. I'm not. You know, I'm not shedding tears <laughs> here, but I'm just saying. But people sitting there in Santa Barbara or you know beautiful areas, they they need to have their their stuff taken care of. Yeah, they do. And and um, is the answer illegal uh, immigration? Yes. Uh-huh. It is. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It is. Um, you know, in in the 1980s, um, there was a lot of people who came to California. Millions came came to California. Well, they've been coming to California since the, since after World War II, 50s and the 60s and like. But there was a lot of people also in the 80s who came to California. And the attitude of California at that time was: there's too many people. You know, we we are the we have the nicest weather in the United States. True. Uh, we have an ocean, true. Beautiful mountains, true. This is a great place. Who would not want to live in California? Anybody in America, if they had their choice, they'd want to live in California over any other state. That's the attitude of pretty much anybody that was living here at that time. However, how do you how do you stop that growth? How, how do you stop that kind of invasion as they viewed it? Well, what you do is you make it so expensive, people can't come. So that, that's basically what happened. It got so expensive in California. You know, we've, we've chronicled L.A., San Francisco, San Diego, Silicon Valley, the unaffordability. Well, now it has gone, the pendulum has swung so far, it's not only unaffordable for people to move to California, sell their house from wherever they were, buy a new house in California. That couldn't happen anymore. Now the people who are here can no longer afford to buy that house or pay that rent. The rents are astronomical, too. So that's that's what happens. People leave, and what you will end up with is something like uh, you know, Aston and, and Jackson Hole and those those beautiful places have extraordinarily wealthy people and extraordinarily unwealthy people, and and that's what you end up with. It, 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 the humor uh, that when I listen to fellows like Paul Krugman and Robert Rice and, and experts like that is they they rant about income inequality is the, is the is the problem that we're facing the greatest, other than climate change, the greatest problem we're facing in America today. Well, guess what? The places that you live, Robert Reich teaches at UC Berkeley, right outside in the Bay Area. Where you live is the Petri dish for income inequality. I, and, 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 and Paul Krugman, where you live is the Petri dish of income inequality. You've yeah. done absolutely nothing to advance the cause of middle-class America, and neither has any of the people on on business channels done anything to advance the cause of middle-class America. That's what you end up with. Um, Clint Eastwood at the end of High Plains Drifter, one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah. When he was asked, the very last line of the movies, he was asked by uh, the character, what do we do now? And as he wrote off, just before he wrote off, he says, you live with it. Well, that's that's where California's headed. And you know the beautiful thing about the United States? The middle-class Americans who have just spent the last two weeks hearing about recessions and the decimation and the chaos and the turmoil and the bloodbath of the American economy, they instinctively are smart enough to pack up and leave where they can raise a family and buy a home. They, they know that instinctively, and they've done it. And, you know, quite frankly, the experts actually know this, too. Um there's two two firms that I think everyone would agree is fairly sophisticated: Goldman Sachs and Pimco. Pimco is one of the world's largest bond trading bond trading firms. Goldman Sachs, everyone's heard of. They came out with their estimate of what's the probability of a recession in America in 2019. The probability that we'll have one. Goldman Sachs came out with a probability of 10%. PIMCO is on the high end of 30%. What that means is 70 to 90% chance we will not have a recession. 70 to 90% we will not have a recession, according to those two firms. 
Um, it's uh, I don't I don't think we should keep bashing the media um, uh, okay. or the politicians who describe things. But there is some yeah. there's some good happening in America. What what happens when the rubber hits the road here then in California? Give us a scenario. I, I asked you, you know, what percentage of X will, you know, will be lost with, with as a result of this uh, the stock market turndown. Forget that. Just tell us what what does the reckoning look like? The reckoning is that the state of California will will look like Manhattan, which Manhattan is admired as one of New York is admired as one of the most uh, financial capital of the world. Yeah. Beautiful city. You have an opportunity to be there, to live there, to try to succeed there. It's one of those aspirational cities in the world today. Right. You also have an abandonment of people from the city and the state of New York abandoning the state because they cannot afford it. Is, is, while California has basically a plus or minus uh, slight, slight out-migration of people, New York is bleeding population because people can't afford to live there. Yeah. Living costs, housing costs, housing, utilities, and okay. food. Okay, okay. Um, out-migration will continue and will increase, yes? Out-migration of middle-class people will continue. Wealthy, the extremely wealthy people will continue to, uh, to, come, to, to come in. Uh, move in. And very poor people, those, those service providers, those, those people to do things for them, the, the, the they argument, you do things for me, the me argument, it's a, you'll end up with a, 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 a very rich and a very poor community. And, you know, uh, I think uh, most of the people that are moving, the very rich people that are moving to California, they build walls around their house. Walls, really? Walls? Huh. Interesting way to end our discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Joel. This is great food for thought at the end of the year. We shall see and we shall watch. You watch closely and give us your reports as we continue our conversations. Happy New Year, and we'll talk to you soon in the new year. Thanks, Joel. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. So during the Christmas break, Bill did a ton of TV appearances. Uh, one was on C-SPAN uh, with Steve Scully, where he talked about the book uh, The True St. Nicholas and Why He Matters to Christmas. By the way, you can pick that book up uh, anywhere books are sold. But uh, in addition to talking about the book, Steve asked Bill questions regarding the government shutdown, uh, the wall, disagreements with the president uh, when he served uh, under uh, President Reagan and under President Bush. Uh, and then he also took calls, a lot of calls about uh, drug policy from the 80s uh, when Bill was drug czar and uh, lots of great content here we just wanted to share that with you and afterwards Bill has some post C-SPAN interview commentary for you this shutdown, why did it happen? because uh, of a disagreement uh, between the president uh, and uh, <clears throat> Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi uh, as Nancy Pelosi reminded the president in that famous Oval Office contretemps uh, it is uh, Article 1 suggests that uh, the Congress does the funding, so uh, they didn't come up with funding for the wall. The president made not a campaign promise, but the central campaign promise, I think, uh, that he would build a wall. Uh, so that they're at loggerheads, and we'll see what happens. You're an expert on the federal government, having served as education secretary, and drugs are the $5 billion. What will that build? How much of a wall? I understand about 240 miles of wall, I think. It's a start, but it's a continuation of what's uh, of what's already been done, and um, I think it makes sense. And again, I think this president, uh, whatever one thinks of him, I happen to like him and admire him. Uh, it does keep his promises in a way we haven't seen before. So he's trying to keep this one. The resignation of General Mattis as the Defense Secretary and the first Defense Secretary to resign in protest because he opposed the president's decision on Syria. Your reaction to that? I'm sorry to see Mattis go. I think he's a very good man. Uh, obviously, he was an excellent general. The president had great pride in the fact that he uh, was coming on. Remember, he talked about bad dog Mattis a lot. And I think he's a sober and thoughtful guy. I think it hurts. But uh, I think the president can make an excellent replacement. I have a recommendation. Senator Cotton, Tom Cotton from Arkansas, I think would do an excellent job. There are other people. One other thing, I was rereading some of the things early on in the Trump administration, and the critics said there were too many generals. I uh, remember when we were talking about General Kelly and uh, General Flynn and uh, General Mattis, McChrystal, uh, he was overgeneraling uh, the government, was the argument. Uh, well, now there's one less general. 
but he's obviously not being praised for it because that's not the way this world works. Did you ever have private disagreements with Ronald Reagan or George H.W. Bush? Yes, yes. And how did you present that to them? I presented it to them as disagreements. Um, I can tell you uh, about uh, about one of them. Uh, one of them was uh, with uh, with Ronald Reagan on the whole situation involving uh, Judge uh, Ginsburg, not Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but the other Ginsburg. I have his name right, correct? Mm-hmm. I think so. Uh, and uh, there was some question as to whether he should be named or not. And I called the press, and it wasn't really a disagreement. It was just people didn't know quite what to do. It came out that Justice Ginsburg, just Judge Ginsburg, a very good man. Who's still uh, on the court. Yes, he's still on the court. I uh, had uh, admitted to smoking marijuana while a law professor with his students. Um, smoking marijuana, you know, when you were young, 60s, I think one can perhaps uh, you know, wave your hand on that. But as a law professor, I thought it was a real problem. I called the White House. Um, I spoke to uh, the chief of staff, uh, Howard Baker, uh, and um, they carried the message forward. There were some other uh, there were some other things that um, there were disagreements on, and I uh, I often was able to get right to the president to express it. Sometimes I won, sometimes I lost. Do you think this president accepts disagreements? Uh, yes, uh, though I think he starts with the presumption that he's right. Most people do. He's just more forward about it. Um, I have spoken to the president on one or two occasions and have raised questions and issues. Uh, yes, there's there's a lot of self-confidence in this president. Uh, and again, um, he has very strong views on things. But, you know, this notion that you couldn't go in and talk to him if you had a different point of view, I don't think it's right. I'm not a close advisor. But I know some people who do speak with him, and they say he is open, uh, open to ideas, but begins with a strong presumption in favor of his own. That's the personality we have. Let's get to your phone calls from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Glenn, good morning on the Democrats' line with Secretary Bill Bennett. Secretary Bill Bennett, I want to ask you a question. Sure. Why did President Trump really and truly was folded in office? I want you to ask that for Thank you. Why was he elected? Why was President Trump elected? country was ready for a change, uh, for a big change. A lot of people felt they were not being served, uh, their interests were not being addressed, uh, and he heeded an unanswered call. Uh, there was a lot of distress in the country, a lot of unhappiness. There were people who disagreed with Barack Obama and disagreed on principle. There's a general sense that uh, Washington was not responsive or being responsive uh, to the needs of the people, and I think that's why he was elected. Next is Amy joining us from Georgia. Good morning, Democrats line. Good morning. morning. Um, I just wanted to say that um, I remember Mr. Bennett uh, from the 80s, uh, the war on drugs, and um, it did a lot of damage in my community. Uh, People lost their uh, fathers, their brothers, some of them their mothers. And watching you today, I was just reminded of something that I learned as a college student, um, that uh, public policy made from a place of cruelty, bigotry, greed, uh, lack of compassion, is far more costly than policy made from compassion, empathy, and a hopeful view about our country. And you are representative of policies that come from a place of cruelty, bigotry, Mm. And, um, How so, Amy? Thank you. Um, I'm looking at Mr. Bennett, and I'm thinking that there's a straight line that can be drawn from from him, uh, Bush the first policy and Reagan policy to Donald Trump. Well, I I, I don't agree at all. Um, when, when Amy is it, Amy? Amy. Amy said that uh, the war on drugs destroyed many lives. It didn't, actually. Uh, in the period of the 80s, this was our most successful effort historically uh, against drugs, the plague of drugs. And if you want to do a body count, do the body count of crack cocaine, do a body count of heroin. Today, do the body count of fentanyl. If you go to the Vietnam Memorial, you will see the names of, what, 45, 50,000 people. More people than that die every year uh, from this current drug epidemic. What we did, and by we, I mean federal government plus state government, local government, the private sector, was pushed back very hard on this drug issue. And for the first time in a very long time, we got the numbers down. Uh, The numbers went down by about 50%, the number of people using illegal drugs, 
we went after the supply, which meant the price of drugs went up. Emergency room admissions uh, went down. People thought, uh, as, like Amy thinks, that uh, we were too tough on drugs. But we weren't nearly as tough on drugs as drugs were on their, on a, on their victims. And I'm proud of the work we did. I understand it's, it's criticized. There was a movie made called Traffic, which was a very successful movie. Pretty good movie. Um, inaccurate in some ways. But uh, I heard that the guy who made the movie did it so that he could uh, send a message to me about how harsh this war was. There were harsh elements in this. We went after the bad guys. We went after them hard. And I remember when I took office, uh, there were four major drug cartel leaders in the world, arguably the most successful criminal enterprises in history. And I said, we'll get them and uh, we'll take them down. And with the help of the Colombian government and the forceful uh, help of the uh, United States military, including Delta Force, we did take them down. So it had its harsh elements, but we also did dramatic uh, increases uh, in counseling and education uh, and in treatment. We pushed on all fronts, and I'm proud of the work we did. We got the numbers down, which is what the object was, which needs to happen now, by the way. In one of the pieces looking at the legacy of George H.W. Bush, yeah. who, of course, passed away, the flags remain at uh, half-staff in his honor for 30 days. There's this from Matthew Pembleton in the Washington Post. He wrote the following. When George H.W. Bush took office, the federal drug control budget was around $5 billion. When he left office in 1993, it was over $12 billion. This was the sharpest escalation in the history of the drug war, and it locked the country into a strategy of punishment, deterrence, and intolerance. Bush's approach did little to alleviate the public health crisis of addiction or halt the flow of drugs to American shores. And we remain trapped within this largely punitive approach. So while we remember Bush as a gentle soul, we should also remember his role in fomenting a drug war that harmed millions of citizens, particularly in communities of color. Uh, wrong, ill-informed, and ignorant. I remember Charles Rangel, who was chairman of one of my committees, said, uh, what are you doing to address uh, this problem in the inner cities? That's the first places we went. I went to 130 communities uh, in, that, in that effort uh, against drugs. And we went to public housing, and we heard the same story over and over again. Can you do something about this plague of drugs? Public housing, I noticed, uh, was populated mainly uh, by women and children. Uh, most of the men who were hanging around public housing were there not as husbands, or caring fathers, but as predators. Uh, and yes, uh, we did some, uh, some, some tough work, tough-minded work in those communities. But when I went to these communities, the, the complaint was always the same. The intellectuals were saying, why don't we legalize drugs? Why don't we make them more accessible? Which is, of course, a huge movement now. People in the communities were saying, can you stop it? Can you get this plague off our streets? Can you stop these people from selling these things to our children? It's a very... Um, contentious issue, I understand. But if you look at the body count, the body count went down during our period, uh, during the time we were uh, in charge of this effort. And I'm proud of the work we did. Our guest is Bill Bennett, who served as the drug czar in the George H.W. Bush administration, education secretary in the Reagan administration. Justin from Jasper, Tennessee, Republican line. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, Mr. Bennett, uh, I, I appreciate your sentiment of your book with St. Nicholas. Uh, I believe the country could probably do better with some faith. I hope these people that are uh, on their little layoff have some faith and, and can uh, enjoy their possible week off with their family. Um, I do believe that the drug war is a complete failure. It's incarcerated way too many people. Uh, and uh, hopefully the country's turning a corner. You know, I, you know, alcohol is, is legal. Why don't we legalize everything? Treat the people that want treatment. Um, you know, uh, natural selection, people are going to overdose and kill themselves. And that's just their predispondence, whether what poison it is, alcohol, cocaine, you know, name your, name your choice there is the way I see it and open up the prisons because you, we've ruined way more lives locking people up for marijuana no. than anything. Justin, no. thank you for the call. We'll people get a don't go to jail or prison in any numbers of any significance. For smoking a joint. What do you think of the new federal law, uh, the, the new criminal law, I, I, criminal I, reform I, I think law. it has a lot of good things in it. I'm concerned about some things. I'm concerned about people making a hard distinction, some of the supporters of it, between violent and nonviolent crime, and thus making something like drug dealing a nonviolent crime. Well, you may deal in cocaine or you may deal in fentanyl, 
uh, and you may be a peaceful um, uh, seller of it. However, once it gets into the bloodstream of people, and it, once it gets into the communities, uh, it destroys. It becomes very, very violent. There's a reason there are a lot of people in prison, and the reason is, in uh, almost all cases, is because of serious crime. The result of that has been a uh, an increase in public safety that we have uh, enjoyed here for some 30 years. Um, so I think one wants to approach, approach this cautiously. I agree with the president's instincts and his ideas on this, and I think there are good things that can be done and reforms that need to uh, need to occur, such as drug treatment uh, in uh, in prisons. But um, the gentleman is just wrong that it was a failure. It was actually a success in the late 80s. We shall see now uh, with this other epidemic coming, which has stemmed from the opioid stems from the opioid crisis and this new horrible uh, drug, fentanyl. Um, if we just th- throw up our hands and say, well, people are going to die, that's not a responsible government response. Uh, that's just not what you do. You don't let people die like that. Is marijuana a gateway drug? Yes, absolutely. There's no question that marijuana is a gateway drug. Uh, and, you know, C.S. Lewis says uh, in one of his writings, he says, you know, when the boat is half underwater, don't get out the fire hoses. Uh, we are, I mean, I, I know the general sentiment, I know the public sentiment, I know I'm in a minority position here, but I think while you have this crisis of drugs and opioids uh, and fentanyl, to be legalizing marijuana, a gateway drug for sure, uh, is crazy. It's just crazy. More young people are in treatment for marijuana than all other drugs combined. That's how people... That's say how say people that again. Are. More young people are in treatment for marijuana than all other drugs combined. Also, I had another hat, another job. You haven't mentioned it, but I was Secretary of Education of the United States. Marijuana, clinically, it's beyond doubt, reduces the capability for focus, attention, and memory. Now, do you think focus, attention, and memory are important for a young person going to school? I think so. There's a man named Hans Breiter. He's a professor of medicine and psychiatry at Northwestern University. He said, if I could design something in a laboratory in order to inhibit children's intellectual growth, I would design marijuana. So it's now legal in many parts of the country. It sure is. And I've been I've been in Colorado a number of times. I'm watching it. I believe in five, six, seven years, they're going to want to take it back. They're going to put the genie back in the bottle. They're seeing the results now. Diane is joining us from Collierville, Tennessee, with former education secretary and former drug czar Bill Bennett, uh, author of 25 books. Good morning. Good morning. I remember in the 80s when uh, President Reagan was there and his wife was saying, just say no to drugs. I remember our communities when drugs hit our communities in the 80s. Community centers closed down. They had killings down here. Drug boys fighting against each other. And another thing, like my brother was in the military. If you want to stop these drugs, check the military, check those airplanes, check those ships. Like my brother said, he's dead and gone now. He died from Agent Orange. That stuff is coming through here with the rich and powerful people in the military and even people up in our government. Thank you, Diane. We'll get a response. Well, interesting. An aspect Diane didn't mention about the military, but I remember talking to Colin Powell about this uh, at the time, was that the military addressed the issue of drug use and did it very effectively. Uh, They had a zero-tolerance policy, which is something we recommended for schools um, uh, when I was Secretary of Education as well as when uh, I was Director of Drug Policy. And the military really led the way on this one. Uh, The military has an important role in this. I remember when I first got the job, you asked about disagreements with the president. It wasn't disagreement with the president. It was disagreements with some of the other cabinet members. Uh, I wanted to go see each of the cabinet members, particularly the secretary of defense, and uh, enlist their help. I didn't want them to make arrests, but I wanted from the from the defense department their eyes, their ears, and their brains because they see everything. And I was getting a little resistance. From, that would have been Dick Cheney? Yes, that's correct. Dick Cheney, good for you. Um, and um, he was... He was respectful and pleasant, but said, this is not my war. This war on drugs is not the, the Pentagon's thing. I said, no, I don't, I don't want it to be. I just need I just need your intelligence capabilities. Well, they were a little reluctant, the people around Secretary Cheney, uh, then Secretary Cheney. So I called the president, and I said, i got to see these guys. I gotta, you got to get me in there. And the president called and did that. He told me when I got the job, he said, if you ever have difficulties, you give me a call, and I'll, I'll straighten it out. And he did. And I called him on a couple of occasions. 
Um, I remember another call, you know, we were all recalling these wonderful stories about George Herbert Walker Bush. He called me on my birthday and he said, I'm sorry to bother you on your birthday. He was the kind of guy who would notice that sort of thing. He said, but I was just at uh, Covenant House in New York, young man uh, recovering from drugs. And he said, Mr. President, I'm, I'm going out. I'm getting out in a few months. And I look forward to, you know, having a couple of years. I know I'll be dead by 25, but a couple of years drug free and, you know, hoping to make my own. He said, why, why, do you, why would a young man's life horizons be limited to 25? And he, he said, I asked him, and he said, where I come from, the streets, the drugs, he said, you know, they'll get me. They'll get me. I won't live past 25. And I said, this is what happens, the horizons of people's minds when they get into this whole, whole uh, disastrous uh, situation. I remember how touched he was by it, and he always supported me. Everything I asked for, he was there. We'll go to Zarek. Join us from Pearl River, Louisiana. Go ahead, please. Hello. How are yes. you doing, uh, Mr. Bennett? Hey. And 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 the host. Uh, I appreciate your service, sir. I am a former drug addict. I started with marijuana. You point on you 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 well educated in that situ in that area because I did a study when I went to college and uh, the what was that called the uh, coffee shops in. What country where they you can go in there and get marijuana? Uh, the illiteracy rate went up 20% in five years. And me, as a marijuana uh, beginner, first with cigarettes, then it led to marijuana, and then uh, I led to, uh, it led me to do other drugs. And I was a, a drug addict for 30 years. Okay, I am up in age now, I'm wiser, I'm better, and the way that I see the drug addiction in this country, which I lost a lot of, a lot of friends yeah. to addictions. Yeah. I lost an ex that have, I have a daughter from, uh, on a, a heroin overdose, uh, the, uh, the night of election Donald Trump was elected. So it is a stepping stone that a lot of people are, are misrepresenting that it's not in this country just to legalize it. And I appreciate your work and I am thankful every morning that I wake up that we have a president, Donald J. Trump, that has common sense, and with his, and he's a president that has to make tough love decisions. And I appreciate your service, and I thank you. And yes, marijuana is a, a very mind-altering drug. And guess who got me off of it? Jesus Christ. Have a blessed day. Faith-based communities often work on this uh, very effectively. Uh, what the caller said is true, and this is if you if you. If you poll the general public, most of the general public hasn't had this problem, and they're open to the idea of legalization. If you poll people who have had drug problems, like this gentleman, they will tell you without doubt this is how it starts for a lot of people. Not everyone who smokes marijuana uh, moves on to other drugs, that's for sure. We know that. But everyone who, almost everyone, most people who move on to other drugs have started start with marijuana. Uh, and that's, uh, that's the case and continues to be the case. You know, I was talking to... Lawrence Kudlow the other day, uh, who still goes to uh, meetings. Um, these are meetings that, like Alcoholics Anonymous, mm -hmm. except for people who experience drugs. He's very candid and open about it. And he says these young people come, and uh, almost all of them have started with uh, with marijuana. Interesting to think uh, Larry Kudlow, National Economic Council uh, head, still does this on a weekly or monthly basis. Good for him. We did an interview with him, by the way. It's available on our website at cspen.org, and he talks in great detail about oh. his addiction to drugs and alcohol mm -hmm. and uh, how he was able to recover. Before we let you go, the passing of George H.W. Bush, and his son George W. Bush said that he is, in his mind, the most consequential one-term presidency in our history. Would you agree or disagree with that? Um, I, I said I thought so, too. I got an angry letter about John Quincy Adams, and I, I just need to go back and check my notes. I did a history book, America's Last Best Hope. Maybe not, not the most consequential Adams, obviously. That was, uh, that was John Adams. But uh, I think you can make a very good case for George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, and particularly in terms of foreign policy. Uh, he was a pro. He was an expert. Uh, he, was a great, uh, he was a great mentor. If I have just a minute for a quick story... We were doing a drug event in Houston, Texas, and um, a gentleman came on the bus. The Secret Service approved it once they checked with the president. And he came on, an older uh, African-American gentleman, and he apparently had been coaching girls softball, young women's softball, 
in the same league where George Herbert Walker Bush had coached these two older guys. And he came on the bus and he said to the president, George, you've done really well. You've got yourself a really good job here, you know, president. And I'm just sitting there watching. He said, well, how about you? This guy's name was George, too. So well, things haven't gone so well. He said, you know, he said, that's kind of why I wanted to see you. He said, I was wondering if you could spare me a few bucks. And my head started spinning. I, the president of the United States, this, this, I've never seen this. Without a moment's hesitation, the president reaches in, takes out his wallet, peels off, I don't know, four or five hundred dollars, gives it to the guy. This other George says, thanks very much. I knew I had the right guy. You know, things haven't turned out as well for me as for you. I guess not. And uh, I really appreciate it. The guy walked off. I said, Mr. President, does this happen a lot? I mean, you got to carry a lot of cash. But that was, it's a simple story. It's not the most profound thing he ever did. But the effortlessness of it, the naturalness, the natural grace, the decency. When I remembered, I thought, you know, I was drugs are time. Maybe I ought to carry a little more cash. Maybe. <laughs> Let me just explain one thing about that uh, C-SPAN interview, because I listened to it, or actually watched it afterwards, and one thing I said was unclear, and before some listener caller uh, catches me up on it, let me let me clarify. Uh, Steve asked me whether George Herbert Walker Bush was the best one-term president ever. Right. And I said, well, a number of things come to mind, such as John Quincy Adams. He comes to mind because someone, in response to my saying that I thought George Herbert Walker Bush was one of the best single-term presidents, said, no, he was he was bad, uh, and that he was as bad as John Quincy Adams. I might be interpreted to be saying, oh, I think John Quincy Adams was one of the best one-term presidents. Not so. Okay. Um, I was corrected uh, properly by a listener. I think we talked about this last time. Yeah, Joe mentioned... Uh... Joe mentioned James K. Polk. Correct. And I, you know, I, yeah. I might have to yield. I mean, as much as my personal affection for George Herbert Walker Bush, Polk uh, maybe holds that record as the best one-term president. So we appreciate that thought from Joe. But I want to straighten out that uh, that ambiguity. But I found the whole discussion interesting. And you know what I found interesting in the calls? I tend to think of myself more as the secretary, former secretary of education. Right. Listeners think of me more as the drug drugs are, yep. particularly Absolutely. people who disagree with me. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that's fine. I'm, I was happy with both jobs and uh, found the drugs are job very satisfying, very interesting, more interesting, frankly, than the secretary of education job, which is about things that I have believed for 30, 40 years. The drugs are was somewhat of it was new territory for me. My learning curve was steeper. Um, I actually think we can have show more demonstrable success mm -hmm. in that job uh, than in the education job because we didn't require congressional approval to do a lot of the things that we were able to do. And where I did get require congressional approval, I usually got it right. uh, from Chairman Biden in the Senate and um, and people like Charles Rangel in the House, mm -hmm. Democrats. Yeah, and you know the, the the story that you've shared before on the uh, on the radio show, but you shared on C-SPAN was you know going into some of the public housing um, communities. Women and children, and they're saying, "Hey, can you get these guys off the streets?" And you brought up a great point because I forget the caller's name. It might have been Amy, and she you talked about you know um, a lot of our brothers and fathers were affected by by this war on drugs. You know, like the, you, you made a great point that you know you go to these communities, they want these guys off the streets, not selling drugs. And the men that were there, they weren't there as loving brothers and loving fathers. They were there selling drugs to that community, causing terror in that community. Yeah, well, thanks, thanks for listening closely. I should have recalled maybe the most uh, memorable visit I made to a community for the contrasts. I went to Boston to visit a school when I was drug czar, and lo and behold, the uh, celebrities, if you will, political celebrities who came out to visit and sat in the back of the classroom were another, none other than the governor, Mike Dukakis, uh, and the uh, senator, uh, Ted Kennedy. And we were in a classroom, and I asked these kids, this was in um, uh, a white part of Boston, but pretty poor, and I said, what should we do about these drug dealers? And I remember the first kid said, fry them. Mm -hmm. And then the other kids kind of joined in on this. Yeah. Uh, Kerry was there, too, Senator Kerry. I mean, this was Kerry, Dukakis, and Kennedy. Mm -hmm. Quite a quite a group. They felt they needed to come and balance, counterbalance me. Well, they were making all these noises about, you know, maybe you legalize and maybe just go softer. And the kids were having none of it, uh, <laughs> which was interesting. And these were little kids. These were fourth sure. fifth graders. Mm -hmm. But I remember that. And then and then going into some parts of Boston that were drug ravaged and hearing the same thing from people saying, can you get these guys off the street? That night or that early evening, I went and gave a speech at Harvard 
You remember this? Yes. Mm-hmm. And all I got from the Harvard audience was, uh, why don't you legalize? Why don't you make it more available? Well, they did finally do that in Massachusetts. Let's see how that experiment goes. But the point I made that night or that late afternoon, that evening, was uh, here I am at Harvard. Everybody's talking about make these drugs more available. People who are most affected, mm-hmm. who've had yep. their brains beat out by because of drugs and drug dealers, want us to keep these guys in prison. I remember it was on that Boston visit. Someone said, why do you look, keep letting these guys out of jail so early? Keep wow. them in there. Mm-hmm. I wonder how mm-hmm. they feel about these criminal justice reforms that yeah. are going on right yeah, now. Not. Some of them very sensible, by the way. But, um, yeah, it was uh, it was quite striking. And you mentioned the body count. I mean, you know, you want to yeah. talk about how many you know, numbers of guys affected by the war on drugs. What about what drugs actually have done to people yeah. body counts higher on the drug yeah. yeah that's right and today uh we are looking at sixty thousand a year in this uh it's called the opioid crisis but it's a uh, illegal drug crisis mm-hmm. and um horrible horrible thing i was very interested in those calls and the tenor of those calls uh people took it personally which did not bother me and if somebody somebody's loved one went to jail i, I would often hear about it and you know get a yeah. complaint mm-hmm. But for the most part, the people who were most affected negatively by drugs supported our tough measures, uh, not in the um, shaded ivy groves of, uh, of, of Cambridge, but in uh, Somerville and South Boston and Revere. I mean, when you're a single parent and your kids are coming home uh, from school by themselves and they've got to walk through the halls of the apartment complex and there's drug dealers there every day, you know, that's tough. You that's don't right. you want them off the streets. You know, when you, if you're a dad, you know, or, and, and, you know, your daughter or your wife is coming home from work and there's these guys just hanging out, inside, you know, and they're selling drugs. They're up to no good. You want them off the streets? That's right. You want That's them off right. the streets? That does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com and you can get them for the whole year, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. Love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week. 